This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Odds and Audibles podcast and a happy new year. I'm Matt Premier, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this pod, this podcast, guys. I, I'll be honest. I'm like... A couple days late, but the holiday season has like hit me. I have no idea what day it is. I think it's Monday because we're doing a mailbag, but you also could convince me that it's like Saturday because the NFL played a couple days ago, which could be Thursday. There's bowl games on today, which typically isn't Sunday. I don't know what day it is. My wife's off work today, so it's like not a month. It's it's not a weekend day. I know that. Matt, it's actually Thursday. I'm just kidding. No, Damn it. You get, you, <laughs> good deductive reasoning and, and figuring out what day of the week it was. You could also look on your phone. It's a, it's a tip. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, but we're going to, yeah, we're going to dive into this mailbag. Uh, a lot of questions that were submitted. We appreciate those. Um, and it's kind of that part in the year, guys, where football is still king, but other sports are going to start making their way in and taking some territory now. Yeah, no, I, I kind of like the way this show is going to break down. The first three questions before the break are all football. Back half is going to be men's and women's basketball related. Um, got a, about, about, I don't know, 20 questions, I think, submitted. And I'd say about a quarter of them were non-football related, which is definitely the the, the high since probably, I don't know, last spring. Um, so fun to talk about some other sports here on the back end. But let's start with a question from one of our favorite question askers under uh, at Nash underscore Duckaneer, who asks, first starts off with a, with a, with a, a thing that uh, I guess we'll read out here. Uh, Happy New Year's, fellas. Happy New Year's to you, Nash, and to all those listening. What would you say is Oregon football's New Year's resolution for 2023? <clears throat> um, I actually thought of two, um, and I'll see what you guys have here, but I kind of thought about this, how I, I would approach resolution. So the first one is they need to cut some weight. Uh, they're about 10 scholarships above probably where they ultimately need to be, maybe even a little bit more. And I hate to talk about it in these terms. I have the number if you'd like it. Yeah. What's the number exactly? I think, was it 92, 93? They are at 91. 91. So, yeah, they need to lose six. And that doesn't account for possible additions going forward, which is where you probably do need to see they're recruiting a couple more players. In fact, uh, Ashton Porter, I think, Matt, he's, he's, correct me if I'm wrong, he's supposed to make a decision, I believe, tomorrow at one Today. of the arm. Today. Today. During the underarm, halftime of the underarm All-American. Okay, ball. so keep an eye out for that. Uh, so that if he were to pick Oregon, which I think consensual, uh, uh, the consensus right now is, that would bring you to, yeah, not consensual. Maybe yeah, it's was, the, de- <laughs> the decision, Jared. It's a big decision. Be- the decision yeah. would be consensual. Um, this is terrible. Unless unless you're Peyton Bowen, I guess. All right, let's continue. Um, <laughs> but regardless, they do need to cut some scholarships here because they're about six over now, and I think we can all kind of expect, using logic and the kind of the number of players they're still in on, that they need to probably cut four more on top of that just because they're still actively recruiting players. I don't think this all happens now. Um, I think you're going to see a fair number of players – 
stick it out through spring. Remember, you the 85 doesn't come into play until the season starts. So you do have some time here to sort all of this out. But the roster still needs to make, you know, there's still some some decisions that have to be made. They, they kind of need to, like I said, to trim, I hate to tr use the term trim fat, but they need to cut some scholarships and need to get some players out of the program, which I hate talking about it again in those, you know, in that fashion. But that's just the reality of, of kind of the difficult offseason juggling you're in right now with the way the portal works um, and with the fact that the NCAA has removed the 25 scholarship limit um, that allowed Oregon to sign, I believe, 28 in the in the fall uh, and probably several more now in February. So that's that's number one is they need to cut some cut some of the cut some players They need to make some room. And then the second one is I think defensively, you just need to get a lot better. Like, I, I, you know, I, I guess you look back at this season and you go, there were plays to be made in both the Washington and Oregon State game offensively. There were they could have won both of those games if the offense is able to convert on some drives. Because Washington, unfortunately, Bo Nix was out for the most crucial sequence there down the stretch. Uh, so that made that difficult against Oregon State. They had four plays from a couple yards from the goal line. You're right. You could argue that the offense is just as much at fault for those losses. But I think anybody who's watched this team all season understands the defense is really where they need to, to sort some things out. The offense, for the most part, give, gave you enough to win football games. You're encouraged probably going into the new year because, because of the way they played in the Holiday Bowl, but I still think there's so much more there defensively. So I, I think that's the other big one for me going into 23 is the defense needs to have, we talked about on this podcast, a bit of an overhaul. There's still some, and this is why I think you need to shed even more scholarships because to me, there's still two or three portal additions on defense away from, for, for me to feel confident with what they have. At least. Yeah. So, you know, and, I, and maybe I'm being conservative. Maybe it's more, <clears throat> I, I'll be curious to see kind of who's in the portal and who they're interested in taking. But um, th I think that's the, that's the other big one. They need to address some of the defensive stuff and it's, it's personnel related probably just as much as it is, anything else for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree that those are the two biggest ones. So I'll tackle the third largest uh, challenge or the biggest resolution that Oregon needs to accomplish. Uh, figure out the special teams other than Camden Lewis. Um, <clears throat> yeah. That's that's about it. Um, punting was an absolute disaster this year. Uh, you know, Oregon went through four, four punters. Uh, the only one that didn't see the field was Lachlan Bruce, um, who I, I think was just a walk-on at Oregon, who has now entered the transfer portal or has at least left the program. So they'll be – and then Joe Lorig is as well-renowned as a special teams coach during his time at Penn State, Penn State who plays in the Rose Bowl today at 1, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, he was well-renowned. He did a great job at Penn State uh, with all their punters and kickers. They brought in a lot of guys. They brought in Ross James. They brought in Adam Barry. They brought in Alex Bales. They brought in Andrew Boyle, all four of them to include with Camden Lewis. And all four of those guys that I just listed had their opportunities of punting. And I don't think any of them lasted more than three games as the, the starting or at least punting in, a, in one game. Boyle was the kickoff specialist for most of the season, even though we thought originally it would be um, Alex Bales. Uh, but Boyle was fine, but there were moments like against Washington where he had an, an inadvertent kick out of bounds that set up teams for a much shorter field in a time that was very uh, not optimistic. And I know that Oregon, uh, I think later on it was Dan said that they were trying to, to aim for the corner and, and isolate that side of the field on their special teams. But 
Yeah, that's a great encapsulation of what the special teams was all, all season. It was a lack of execution. Um, and kickoff returns, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but kickoff returns, the, when they were returnable, were very poor. Um, I don't know what teams averaged against Oregon, but just from the naked eye, you could see against UNC in the Holiday Bowl that those were um, good returns. They, didn't, they weren't touchdown returns, but they set up UNC in very favorable field position. Um, Oregon has seemingly tried to address this in the um, in the in the recruiting cycle with Grant Meters, a, a kicker punter, more of a kicker, um, not on scholarship, than Luke Dunn. Who is an or Dune, who is an Australian punter who exists and is on a scholarship. And although you can't find any information about him punting a football, he does come from Pro Kick Australia. Um, there are no indications that he's excellent. There's just that you got to put your blind faith in Joe Lorig and Dan Lanning on this one by offering him a scholarship to be the punter. Um, I expect that there will be more punting or kicking additions in the offseason just because they need it. They just need the depth there instead of just having. Uh, Two, two kickers on the roster, or three kickers on the roster, excuse me, with Boyle coming back with Lewis. Um, but this just needs to be solved. And it also needs to be solved on the coverage scheme. Um, but this kind of plays back into what Eric ended his segment with of just, this feels a little bit more personnel related in their struggles more than anything else. And again, now that, that Dan and Tosh and Will Stein eventually are recruiting their guys. I think Joe Lorig is having a hand in that, and he's recruiting his guys to be the gunners, his guys to be a potential long snapper, his guys to be on the special teams unit. So um, I think that's, to me, after, after Eric took the top two, that's number three for me uh, in terms of specific New Year's resolution that this staff needs to accomplish. A couple real quick for me. Um, red zone success offensively for Oregon. Um, 63rd in the country and getting points once they got into the red zone, um, that needs to get better. You, you need to be better in that category if you're going to be a team that gets to the college football playoff, if you're going to be a team that wins uh, your conference championship. I mean, just a quick look at the top of the group. I mean, three of the four teams in the college football playoff were in the top 10. Georgia and Ohio State were one and two. Georgia scored 97.4 percent of the time we got into the red zone michigan was 10th uh and then i'm just quick scanning here i I don't see tcu in the top 25 or or 30 or so but that number needs to get better regardless you're you're in the 60s that 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 can't happen if you're oregon and then on the flip side like i know um fixing the defense is already mentioned but in particular red uh third down defense oregon was atrocious 124th in the country 47% 47% of the time an opponent converted a third down conversion against Oregon. Maybe that's being more successful on first and second down so that you don't get yourself into a third and short uh, or a third and a yard type deal. But it wasn't just that this season. How many times in a game did an opponent convert a middle to long pass for 9, 10, 12, 13 yards for a first down on third down? Um, that that needs to be, you know, the whole defense needs to get better. But that in particular, the money downs, as Oregon calls them, they had a lot of opportunities this season to get off the football field uh, or to prevent a touchdown and instead force a field goal attempt. And they just failed to do it because 47% of the time, 
the opponent got a first down. And then, I mean, haven't even looked at their fourth down numbers. I, I would be really curious if I could do this really quickly, but um, I'm imagining they're going to be probably the bottom half of the country there as well. Um, a quick scan and I don't oh, 55th in the country, 48%. So, I mean, that's still, it's not terrible, but it's also not really good either. And they were top 20 in fourth down defense for part of the year, but then they finished really poorly because North Carolina had three conver conversions on fourth. And I know Oregon State had a couple as well. So that was one where they kind of limped to the finish line. I agree. Those are two. I, I think that's a nice way to kind of end that segment, Matt. And we kind of talked, Jared and I did kind of big picture sides of the ball. You kind of isolated on a couple of individual things where I'm in, in total agreement. Third down defense was probably the most glaring situational problem for this team to me all season. I mean, it was a terrible first half, by the way, in the holiday bowl. I think you have to commend them for playing much better on third and the second, but mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're totally right. That was never something that was a strength for this team. And then red zone offense was so hit and miss. Like there were games where they couldn't be stopped around the goal line. And then there are other games where, as we saw on arguably the most, if you know, decisive series of the season, against Oregon State and Corvallis, where they had four shots at it from a couple of yards out and couldn't punch it in. Um, just too many instances kind of like that in big spots. And again, I think the offense, as I said, I, I feel really good about where the offense is at. I think at some point this week or next week or some time, we'll, we'll kind of start previewing what a hypothetical too deep might look like for next year. Um, I know Jared and I will discuss that off, off show, but uh, I think the offense is going to be really talented. And if Will Stein can kind of continue to be a – plus quality play caller, Oregon will be fine offensively. But you're right in terms of that is an area of the field where they just weren't consistently quite good enough. All right, second question from at Ducks2124. How would you grade this season? Um, and then he goes ahead and gives his own explanation, and, and we'll kind of give ours after. I'm going with a B minus with the positives being winning a bowl game, 10-win season, a top recruiting class in the Pac-12, negatives being the embarrassing loss to Georgia, and losing to the Huskies and Beavers. I hope I'm not. I hope it's not a harsh grade. I did not expect Oregon to beat Georgia, but to lose that badly with Landing having multiple months to repair. Also, I'd, I don't like losing to the Huskies, but to lose at Austin made it worse, and don't get me started with the OSU meltdown. Um, the second half of that, I think it, it, it looms large with anybody trying to kind of assess this season, right, of terrible first impression for this season where it couldn't really get any worse. That's did we ever find out like, is that the most lopsided Oregon loss to start a season ever? I don't know if we talked about that in the moment or not, but it has to be really close. It has to be. If it, if it isn't, it's like very close because they got absolutely rolled. And as we've seen now with Georgia, who is what two score favorites to win the national championship. It's not like Oregon lost to a bad team. They lost to what I expect. To Quite be. good. Yeah. I expect to be the very best team for a second straight year. So, but you're right in terms of like, it's not a great first impression regardless of opponent to just get steamrolled and for it not to be competitive really past the first few drives of the game. Um, and then the Oregon state Washington stuff is, was just a devastating way to end a season that had so much promise when you went eight straight. So I get the frustrations there. I'm probably a slight grade above what Ducks 2124 is offering. I'm going with a B. Um, I was asked this very similar question on last Thursday, last Wednesday, I guess it would have been, the live stream Matt and I did following the, the, the victory over North Carolina. Um, 
I think B is probably where I land. I mean, they, you, you, you established what they did accomplish. To me, obviously, you mentioned the Oregon State and the Washington losses. To me, why I take even you know a little bit further off of like, if you're deducting grades and you're going to start with like an A grade, you, you take off for the losses. But to me, you also take off for the fact that the goal of this team year in and year out, one of them, is to reach the Pac-12 championship game and to win it. And Oregon had reached three straight going into this past season. And to be in a driver's seat going into the last month of the season there where, gosh, I don't know what the odds would have said uh, if we would have had Kornacki on the show breaking down all the Pac-12 uh, championship odds. I bet Oregon was like a 90%. With they were like plus 125 Right. I'm just saying like what the percentage, like, if, you know, because Kornacki does like the, the yeah, NFL yeah. playoff odds. But I'm like guessing like before going into the Washington game, Oregon had to have been like 90% plus to make the conference championship game. Like it was almost a foregone conclusion for most of us that they were going to be playing in that. To miss out on that, to me, that's what's a really, that's a, that's the, I think the toughest pill to swallow is the fact that they didn't even get an opportunity to play for the conference championship. When I think kind of objectively, if you look at the way this season played out, especially up until the losses for Oregon, of course, you have to include that. Like, there was a stretch that Oregon, I think, looked like the best team with just how decisive they were week in, week out, compared to what you saw with USC, what you saw with Utah, what you saw with UCLA and Washington, um, who each had hiccups. But Oregon didn't finish, and that's I think that's the reason why this grade goes down a notch and goes from potentially, if this season plays out a little different down the stretch, you're talking about it being a very, very successful season. And then just the last comment I'll make before I toss it over to Jared, Oregon's now had 13 10-win seasons in program history. Decent amount. Almost all of them, every single one of them has happened in the last, gosh, what is the math on that? About 25 years. For Dan to get one in his first season, like that's pretty impressive. I think that's the first time a head coach, well, second time because of Chip, has started a, a head coaching career with, with a 10-win season at Oregon. So Didn't Helfrich do it too? You're right. So it would be two. So maybe it's not that special. Never mind, Dan. It wasn't that good of a first year. No, you're. <laughs> but you're right, Matt. You're right. No, no, you're right. Yeah, Chip and Health. Yeah, that was ten wins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. So, but still, thirteen times in program history, Dan got one in his first year. Not a bad way to start a coaching career. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll try to take all the emotion out of this for the grade. I think I would. I'd, I'd sit between a B and a B plus. I think I'd lean on the higher side towards a B plus range. I get the the emotions that happen when when your favorite team loses to the rival, um, especially in in such dramatic fashion as Oregon did against Washington and against Oregon State. Um, I just look at the Georgia loss and I completely throw it out the window. Um, Georgia's the best team in the country. Um, they showed it by beating Ohio State, which is a very uh, you know a top five team in the country. Some consider it to be the second best team in the country, even the, despite the loss to Michigan. Um, you know, they were down two touchdowns in the in the college football playoff and they still came back and won. Um, it's a really damn good team. And I, you know, that's Dan Lanning's first ever game as a head coach in Atlanta. All the things were going against Oregon. None of us expected them to win. Um, I didn't expect it to be close. Well, I guess I expected it to be closer than the final score. But again, expect I expected it to be closer. 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 -er. Yeah. I just I throw that out, I throw that one out the window. It's like how I treat the COVID seasons. Boom, gone. It's such a disadvantage for most people. So, and if you look at it, if Oregon decides to play Portland State like they are next year, that's another add another win on the on the schedule. Add another win, so it's like eleven and three season. Um, and then you look at the fact that Washington and Oregon State are actually both very good 
Oregon only lost to really good teams this season. Washington's a top 10 team. Oregon State's a top 15 team. And so is Oregon now uh, after ending the season with a bowl win. So then you look at what, what Dan was able to do with people who just aren't his guys. Um, and I know that the, the people that Mario brought in are, were talented players, um, but he did a lot uh, to me, and especially with Kenny, Kenny Dillingham and the hires that he made. I thought he did a lot with with who, who the program had already assembled, who the transfers came in that – I don't think that the, the prior staff figured out. I thought that he unlocked a couple of new things with with players who were already on the roster. You bring in a top recruiting class. Um, them and USC are right there, one and two for the total or the Pac-12 crown of recruiting. Um, I I just think it was a good season for Dan. And I think that the the issue of why people think that it's a poor season is the expectations suddenly change. At the beginning of the season, the expectations were a nine and ten win program, right? For for Dan and, and Oregon, just because of the uncertainty of, of Kenny Dillingham, the uncertainty of Dan Lanning, um, the uncertainty of most of these hires because they were no name no name guys like Carlos Lachlan. Nobody knew who he was, and everybody was like, "Dan, why why did you make this hire for a guy who's uh, only been a high school coach and like an off field uh, camp or recruiting coordinator at Florida State, who's never who had one year as a running back coach at Western Kentucky?" Like what is going on? But um, and that's why, you know, Eric and I, we predicted a nine and three regular season um, just because that seemed to be the uh, that seemed to be the watermark or the waterline there. And the Mendoza line, I thought, was a nine and three season. And that's exactly what happened. And for Oregon to to get their 10th win, um, I think is huge for Dan moving forward. Uh, bowl win in his first season, I think is big moving forward as well. Um, I just with the expectations changing after the eight straight wins and suddenly it's college football playoff or Rose bowl bound or Pac-12 champion or bust. Um, and I know how that's how college football works. Um, I think that that gets lost in the fact that you know, things were different at the beginning of the season. And but obviously they change when you do well on the field. But I just think that Dan had a fine first season. I think that it was good. I think that the team played well. I think that the trajectory of this, Oregon program has not changed course after Mario Cristobal left. I think it's going, it's moved, still continuing on an upward trajectory. Yeah, I think I said on that podcast with Eric and I live streamed after the game B plus, my opinion doesn't change. Um, the Georgia game, like we all thought they would lose. We didn't think they would lose in the manner in which they did, but it's still the opponent. It's it. And I mean, Kirby Smart doesn't make the comment that he made afterwards if he doesn't believe that Dan knows it too. Where it's like, look, yeah. they they have they we have better players than they do, and you know he knows that. And I I think Dan would never say that publicly, um, but deep down, it he probably did know that. And Jared's right. Mario Cristobal's recruiting class. The last couple of seasons have been really good. This is a talented roster, but they're not Georgia level talent yet. And um, so I'm not too worried about that. It's just the manner in which Oregon State and Washington losses came in a two week, a three week period. Um, if those were spread out, I think the fan base would be a little more receptive to the overall arcing of this season. But the fact that you went into November, like Eric said, with the clear-cut path to not only winning the league, but probably playing in the college football playoff if you had won out. Um, 
and then losing two out of three, even even going into that Oregon State game, knowing you're not in the playoff. But if you just win that game against Oregon State, it doesn't matter what happens in the Pac-12 championship game because you're going to the playoff. You're going to the Rose Bowl because if you win, you, you secure it. And if USC beats you, you still go to the Rose Bowl because they would they would have been in the playoff. Um, but ten wins is still a big accomplishment. Um, I thought the turn the season around after that Georgia game, he easily could have lost the locker room, like Mac Brown said, uh, ahead of the North Carolina Holiday Bowl game. And then I, I don't want to make too much about a, a bowl game, but I just think the players that they were without, whether it was opt-outs, pro declarations, injuries, uh, transfers, the, the, the roster that they had and the opponent that they were playing um, to make some adjustments. It wasn't always pretty. They didn't have their offensive coordinator. Um, and to make the adjustments that they needed to make in that halftime to turn things around and to come back and win is it, pretty cool. It's pretty big. It's a, it's a good launching point for next season. So you win. If they had lost that game, I probably would have said a B, B minus. But because they win, they get the, the momentum that comes with it going into the offseason where. They're one of the few teams out there that wins, you know, has a has a win to, to end their season. Uh, I, I'm going to say a B plus again. And, and just one last thought before we get to the third and final question before the break. You know, not all seasons are fair, and I think if you played the last three games a hundred times, and Bo Nix doesn't hurt his ankle the way he did. I think Oregon wins at least one of those two games. I'm pretty confident of that. And 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 they had opportunities to obviously win both those games, even with the circumstances. But how different does that change? You know, I just think you look at that that sequence there, and I, we don't have to rehash it over and over again against Washington, where you have the high snap and then Knicks gets hurt two plays later. That really just shifted the whole trajectory of that last three game period there. And we might be having a totally different discussion. And that's how football works. That's how sports work, right? That's it's a game of inches, as they say, and it makes it just a challenge to kind of assess on the fly because we're we're a, a healthy Bo Nix away from Oregon maybe winning 11 games and playing in the, at least in the Pac-12 championship. And who knows what happens if they face, it would still, I think, be USC, depending on how all of it, you know, if you did it 100 times, how it all kind of factor out. But that's the way sports are. And the encouraging thing is, you know, going into 23, you have a quarterback who proved this year he was never – uh, uh, even when he was injured, kind of not up for the moment. I, I thought just that that to me was a really encouraging part for 22 and now for 23 is with Bo is that guy's a warrior. He plays his tail off and he never says die. And I thought you saw that come together, especially uh, throughout the season. But even in particular, that kind of last couple of drives against North Carolina, you know, this guy was clearly not at his best that whole game, but boy, did he step up when it mattered most. And I think you have to be really encouraged going into 23 with what you have at quarterback. All right, third and final question before we head to the break from Jay McCallum4. I would love a year-end review of the stock game from the beginning of the season. I haven't updated my spreadsheet yet in hopes that I will be able to compare it to Jared's for accuracy. Curious to see how it all shook out. Hashtag odds and audibles. Uh, appreciate that someone had a spreadsheet keeping track of this as well. How about that? Uh, appreciate that. Uh, Jared, I'm going to toss it to you in a moment uh, to kind of recap it, but just to kind of for those who maybe weren't season-long listeners, Jared came up with a really fun stock game uh, right before the season started. 
Yep. Uh, and the concept was to basically use previous stat values. We each had a, a budget of what was the budget we had, Jared? So the five hundred bucks. Five hundred dollars. Yeah, and we could each buy, and then depending on how the stocks operate over the course of the season, we were going to see net success and kind of compare how we all did. We got maybe one update middle of the year, but I don't. I don't think we did one for a while. So it, I'm, I'm happy that that this uh, listener recommended we bring this back for a final end of year review because I'd kind of honestly forgotten a little bit about it. So Jared, would you break down absolutely how all this played out for us? Sure. Yeah, and uh, uh, we had an updated week three, I believe it was something like that. Um, yeah, and so just a, a reminder of how the stock prices were originally calculated. Um, I went with like career statistics because they need a, you, your, your stock needs a value going into your investment. And just to do seasonal statistics, obviously everybody would start at zero. So career statistics, you look at guys like Chase Coder, Caleb Chapman or Bo Nix or um, somebody who has experience already in their, in their player profile. Um, those stocks are going to be higher to start the season just because they're the more uh, concrete. Uh, you know, it's like buying Ford or buying Amazon. Um, stocks that have already been established for a long time here. Um, so I'll do, I'll just do, um, how many shares we bought. So Eric and Matt, you guys both went with the dollar figures in terms of how you allocated shares. Um, so Eric, you bought $25 worth of Dante Thornton, $50 worth of Terrence Ferguson, uh, $50 worth of Troy Franklin and $50 worth of Cam McCormick. Ooh. For your initial, your initial um, offensive uh, allocation, Matt, you bought twenty five dollars. Matt, yeah, I think you went twenty five dollars for every player. I so did. You went twenty five dollars of Chris Hudson, Dante Thornton, uh, Troy Franklin, Kyler Casper, a nice one there. Yeah, um, didn't, didn't didn't show up much from though. I don't think he had one catch. I went yeah. safe. I didn't see a lot of growth here. And then yeah. uh, seven <laughs> McGee, and then nice. I bought. I went by shares, so I bought 50, I bought shares of people, which sounds strange, but I bought shares of the player. Um, excuse me, I bought fifty shares of Thornton, fifty shares of Ferguson, and then thirty-five shares, thirty-five shares of seven McGee. Um, Matt was the only person to invest in a quarterback with one point nine shares of of Bo Nix. Um, we had multiple running back investments. Eric, you bought into Noah Whittington stock. Matt bought into Bucky Irving, Cardwell, and Jordan James stock. And then defensively, a um, whole bunch of players here. I think the, the biggest ones were uh, the biggest investments, excuse me, were uh, the Justin Flow investments. Eric, you put in $150 worth. I put in 200 shares worth, which is $152. We put we we put like all of our defensive allocation on Justin Flo, and it kind of missed it worked. A bit. It kind of no missed, no no. But it worked. It hit, it hit okay. It was a as my dad would put it, it was a ten bagger. So uh, oh. Justin Flo started the season at seventy six cents a share. Um, by the end of the year, he finished at two dollars and sixty six cents. Oh yeah so, yeah. So that's, that's how it works, baby. Um, should I give the year end result or should I go over some guys who like doubled or tripled their value first? What do, what do we think? Of I, I'd like to hear the year end result. And then why don't we go over who, who kind of the big winners were for the year? Sure thing. So again, we all started with $500 to invest um, in first place, the champion of the stock draft, Eric Scopel, 24 seven sports. 
Eric finished the year with a thousand dollars and a thousand fifty nine dollars, more than doubled his his initial investment. So come to Eric for stock advice. You can reach him at uh, never mind. I finished second <laughs> with nine hundred and thirty dollars, so nearly doubled it. Uh, Matt, you finished in third with six hundred ten dollars, so you yeah. did earn you earned some. Um, I but think. Matt- the, I mean, I mean, a hundred. I mean, that's a pretty decent Im- improvement there, Matt. Over year over year, right? You'll take that. What is that like? Uh, yeah, I mean, my, I, I treated this too literally. Uh, I mean, my, my whole strategy was like long term growth, and I went mm-hmm. equal across everything, so I never really got hit hard by Justin the Flow like you guys did. You guys also went hard on some other guys that were low in value that became bigger players. Yes. So that's how you doubled your money, and I did not. But I still contest. Twenty years later, I'll win this win. I'll come out ahead in twenty years. <laughs> I was gonna say Matt, Matt NFL had, stats. Matt had the more sound, uh, probably investment strategy, but for a game where <laughs> it's not real money, uh, I think our risk taking paid off, Jared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a, a couple big risers. Obviously, we went through flow. Um, he's yeah, like I said, started the year seventy six cents, finished at two dollars and sixty six cents. Um, Noah Sewell jumped up pretty well as well. Finished the year or started the year at 852, finished at 1168. Christian Gonzalez started at 424 a share, jumped up to $7.04. Uh, Bennett Williams had a good season in terms of price per share earnings. Uh, went from five and a half dollars to nine and nine, almost nine and a half dollars. Uh, let's see if there's any other big ones. A lot of the big ones were on offense, to be honest. Kianware Hudson basically doubled his price per share. I think. Uh, I bet maybe... you. Uh, I bet no, you. Nobody invested in him. Sorry. I, I bet you Bucky and Troy to me feel like the two. Yeah. Kind of big winners offensively. Yes. So uh, Bucky Irving started the season with eight dollars and forty eight cents price per share, finished it at twenty point eight nine. Big big explosion there. Um, Matt was the only one to invest in Irving. Started with $25, finished with $61, earning $31. Bucks. Um, Noah Whittington also exploded. He had started the season at just under $8 a share, finished at $17.5. Uh, Eric, you, that, this, is, this was the differential between Eric and I. Um, I will stick to this forever. Never invest in a running back. It's never worth it. Um, but in this fantasy stock game, it appeared to be worth it because Eric invested originally $75 bucks in the Noah Whittington stock. Um, and finished the year with 164. Um, so that's a big, big, big go. gap there. Um, yep. So that was the big difference between Eric here and I. Um, and then lastly, just for just pure offensive standpoint, um, Troy Franklin started the season at $2.39 a share. Again, this is just because of how limited he was and how little game experience he had prior to this season. Uh, he jumped up to $12 a share, so Ooh. basically a $10 increase. Chris Hudson doubled his value. Um, he had a sneaky good season. Um, Terrence Ferguson also had a very good season, went from $1.7 a share to $6.2. Um, and lastly, Chase Cota had a nice little impact. $10 a share originally because of his experience, finished at 15.4. Nobody invested in him, so that could have been that could have been a stock to go for, but that's it. Eric Scopel, king of the finances. Um, yeah. Again, you could reach him at Eric. no. You're you can, good. You, you can you can DM me for stock advice. I'm terrible with actual stocks, so don't don't actually real money. Reach, don't, don't, don't real money in general. I'm bad. I'm bad with it. 
Don't, don't Do we ask want to me. redo this, uh, set the table all over again, or maybe carry over oh. with the money going into spring football before practice starts, and then we maybe update it after the spring game, and then uh, we could go back and distribute some money again. I don't know, figure it out ahead of fall camp. I mean, I, do we, yeah, like full on, everyone cashes out, they sell all their stocks, you start with the money that you have, or make it mm-hmm. equal again. I don't know, but. Maybe we make this like a long-term deal here where before spring football, we start up again. I love it, Matt. I think we should. And because I have the most money to play with, I think we should use your idea where we roll it over. I, I, <laughs> I, it always seems fair. Yeah, I think I think the rolling over is, is certainly fair. I mean, you would do that in real life too. Cash yeah. out, put it back in if you want. Or, you, I don't know, well, you, could, you can't really keep any of it to the side and then invest you know, some of your profits. This is fantasy yeah. here. Can I invest in players at other schools? Or is that anything we're starting to get? Just kidding. Um, I don't want to keep making spreadsheets, I mean, man. If you want to make the spreadsheets, go for it. I'd like to invest in – I'm just kidding. I I, I think no. uh, I think this is fun, though, Jared. Good call on this. And uh, I think it's good that we recapped it for those who were curious how it played out. Agreed. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll have a couple more questions to dive into. And it sounds like it's going to be outside of the realm of football. All coming up next here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the Yachts and Audible's podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack. Uh, happy New Year to you all. Uh, three questions in, three topics in. We've got a couple more to go to wrap up the show. All right, this one's coming right to you, Matt, because it's a men's basketball question from at Chrisser CDP Hoops. Does this team have another level, or are they a 500 NIT, NIT-bound team? Can Will Richardson put a pull a Pritchard and lead the team to an NCAA run. Every time I think they are just not good, they play well enough to make me hopeful. Uh, I'm guessing Chrisser was responding, you know, kind of reacting to the Utah Valley loss, which was really demoralizing. And then I think a pretty impressive win over, again, not a great Oregon State team, but at least a, a rivalry win on Saturday. Um, the last time I saw them play was Utah Valley because I was in a wedding the day of tip-off of the, the Oregon State game. So Gar- Jared will have to speak to more of just how they looked um, in that one compared to Utah Valley. But yes, this team has another level. Technically, yes, they do. They have a couple more levels that they can get to. Um, But it's all going to be dependent upon the health. And it's an unfortunate answer, but that's the reality that they're in. Um, 
they're still without Keyshawn Bartholomew. They're still without Jermaine Cousinard, and they're still without Nate Biddle. Um, I, I think this isn't trying to devalue Biddle's worth because he certainly can help this program long-term and help this team win some games, but they have the big guys right now with, with Dante and with Ware and Gurrier and the guy that's basically made Dane Altman have to play him, Luke Ware, someone I don't think we ever would have said. Um, so they've got the depth that's needed to, to play with their big guys. Could they use another one? Absolutely. But Kuznard and Bartholomew are more important right now because Will's having to play almost 40 minutes, if not 40 minutes, every single game. They need more ball handlers. They need more shooters on the field, on the court. Biddle could help with that shooting regard. But if they can get those guys back and they can get those guys back, maybe potentially for this week's games in the Mountain Schools, but probably more realistically next week against the Arizona schools, um, get them back, get them into – rhythm, get them kind of into the groove and acclimated to what they're doing. Maybe by February, uh, they're firing on all cylinders and they'll have room to, to, to make some plays. They've got 12 games left against net top 100 teams. Um, a couple of those are going to be quadrant one games. A couple of them are going to be top 50 games home or away, which really dictate things. They need to win um, this weekend, probably both games at Colorado on Thursday at Utah on Saturday. And then you, you need to split at home at, at worst um, against Arizona state and Arizona. Um, ideally sweep them uh, w- w- would be huge, but this team's got another has multiple levels to get to. If they get hot, yes, they could make a run because they have the talent. It's just, they haven't practiced well together. They haven't had enough bodies consistently to practice full go. Uh, and they've put themselves in the eight ball because of it, because they've lost some games that they absolutely should not have lost to Utah Valley and uh, UC Irvine. I am uh, – it's getting late in the season. It's January. Uh, these guys still aren't back, and like, like Matt mentioned. I think the guard depth is um, – really evident on this team right now. Um, I covered the, the Oregon State game. Um, Oregon, you know, went in a half with a 13-point lead and then lost it, and then we're down by a couple. Came back, Will Richardson, Onions, had a good game. Very clutch. That's, I mean, it, this is just the story of, of what Oregon basketball has been this entire season. I'm not sure what the levels that they can go to are. I think getting back depth is really important. I just don't know how they'll congeal and what the continuity of this team will be. Um, and all of these guys are working from lower body injuries. And Dana Altman mentioned it after the press con- or after the game in his press conference. Since they're lower body injuries, you know they have to be pretty cautious about what they, how they practice, what the minute restriction is, how they can get back in health, what their um, stamina is, because that's a big part of college basketball. Um, I think the, the most important thing is when these guys get back is that Will Richardson will get rest and they'll have a, a secondary ball handler and somebody who can initiate the offense because that's the biggest issue right now is when you take the Fale Dante off the court or when you take Quincy Gurrier off the court because of foul trouble, because of rest, whatever the case may be, and it's only Will Richardson, it's only Will Richardson who can create anything on offense. Luke Ware is not doing anything. Rivaldo Soares is not doing anything. Brennan Rigsby might be able to do something once in a while. Khalil Ware is entirely um, just a post guy and someone who initiates offense through lobs or through um, offensive rebounds and putbacks, things like that. 
there's nobody else to initiate offense other than Will Richardson. And if a and if a if, a, if an opposing team has a good enough defensive player, a good enough defense in general to shut Will Richardson down, it's it's tough. And that's what happened against Oregon State, where Nafale Dante was in, tr- in foul trouble for a lot of the second half. Oregon State just jumped back into it, um, started to force turnovers because of the lack of ball handling that Oregon has in with uh, full court press. Um, I just to, to to answer the question, I'm not sure what the levels are. Um, can Will pull a Pritchard and lead this and lead the team into an NCAA run? Maybe, probably not. I think Pritchard was a much better player than Will Richardson is in terms of just pure scoring ability. I don't see Will Richardson just throwing up like a thirty-something point game against Washington on the road and hitting a step back three to to, to win the game. Basically, um, I, I just think that Pritchard was a better offensive player. I just this team will will need to congeal very quickly when the guys come back from injury to get them at any point of potentially making an NCAA run, just like what Matt said with all the upcoming games. Um, they need these guys to come back quick. They need to come back pretty healthy and um, ready to jump into Division One basketball, which they haven't seen all season long. Their, their next eight games – are at Colorado, at Utah, at home against ASU, at home against number five Arizona, at Cal, at Stanford, and then they play the Mountain Schools again, at home against Colorado and at home against Utah. They're in a like a four-way, a three-way tie right now for fourth place in the league at two and one. They essentially need to go six and two over that eight-game stretch, and maybe even almost seven and one to put themselves in a position with breathing room against the better part of their schedule to have a chance to make the NCAA tournament as an at-large team. You know, they, they need to be in that top four in the Pac-12 standings at the time of the Pac-12 tournament. It, is this going to be an easy hill to climb? No. Is it an impossible hill to climb? No. It's going to be hard. They don't have a, a lot of room for error. They do have some, but – Every game that they lose in these next eight games means it's another game they have to win the second half of, of league schedule, which includes at the Arizona schools, at home against the UCLA schools, three straight road games at Washington, Washington State, and Oregon State. Um, and that's where you're going to need to save some of these losses, air quotes. So the next eight games, you you have to win as many of these as you can. If they go five and three or – four and four, like you're screwed. You're, you've, you've put yourself behind the eight ball where you basically have to win out. Yeah. And I won't pretend like I know as much about you guys about this team. Cause I don't cover it. I just watch from afar, but 71 right now in the net is, is that's a, that's not where you want to be in early January. Um, you, you need to get into the thirties to the forties to reasonably get an at large bid. So as Matt said, there's a lot of work to do. Um, I also agree with Matt that I think the team could be pretty competitive once in slash if, cause I don't know how this is going to work out. Everybody comes back, but to Jared's point as well of like, you can't just expect player comes back off of a two month injury or off of a six week injury. And he is just ready to go. And the role f- and everybody's kind of fit in their roles. Like right. that's, that's a pipe dream. So there's going to be gr- growing pains, which is the difficult thing here where you, you don't really have a lot of losses that you can give up. And you've got basically a new a roster that we just don't know exactly what it wants to look like, I think, down the stretch. Mm-hmm. So um, it's going to be – I think it's going to be a challenge. Uh, one more thing before we go into the last question. 
the the players coming back is what worries me. I talked about this weeks ago when Oregon was actually playing decent basketball. They won a couple games in a row. Oregon dropping down to an eight, nine man rotation actually might have been good for them just because they can all develop. They can all have this chemistry. They know exactly what people are doing. Once Brendan Rigsby got back into the rotation, um, they kind of they figured out kind of what the sweet spot was. Um, but adding three new guys to the rotation, like you mentioned, Eric, with growing pains, you don't want to have growing pains in January, late January, whenever they just whenever whenever they're healthy enough to come back. You want to have those in November. Maybe you lose like an early game. That's that's not really great, but you have the whole season ahead of you. Adding three guys and, and cutting out guys like Luke were, um, I'm not really sure who else they would cut out at this point, but you, you know Gabe Reichel, who's a walk-on. Um, you know, those guys have some roles. Luke has a good role and he sticks to it. He rebounds, he defends, he'll take an open three. You know, I, I just, I worry about the growing pains there and what the continuity is and the chemistry. And all of a sudden, like, Will Richardson will, will have, will, won't have to have the ball in his hands all the time. So what's that going to be like for him? Like, does he, is he going to be able to figure out how to spot up and, and shoot off the ball um, just like this once Kuznard or, or Bartholomew has the ball? Um, I just I worry about bringing, you know, having an 11-man rotation after having an eight- or nine-man rotation for basically this entire season. To another team that has some health concerns, this question is focusing on it, the women's team. This is a question from At The Llama. Love KG and women's basketball, but do they really think they can go through the whole season of Pac-12 play plus postseason with only eight players? I know Kennedy Basham is supposed to return, but looks like a redshirt year is needed to get ready, so they need to add somebody just to have an emergency player. Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, uh, I'm not sure if the Llama missed Sunday's game where Kennedy Basham actually did come back and play. Um, so they, they do have her in the rotation. She played nine minutes. Looked what you'd expect from a true freshman center who hasn't played in two months, which is she finished the shots around the rim. She grabbed a rebound. And she blocked a shot, and then she had some kind of iffy moments. But I don't think you expect her to be great Game, first game back. Um, so they are at eight right now. They will be at nine when Elise Hurst comes back from an injury. I think that's going to looks like an ankle sprain. I think that's going to be a couple of weeks. So the roster isn't getting any bigger. Uh, to the question that, that starts it, do they think they can get through it? Kelly Graves seems to. You know, he's he's had – they had a break here after Jenna Asai left the team down in San Diego of about 10 days to determine, okay, is there anyone we can add through the portal? Is there anybody on campus that makes sense? Is there like a volleyball player who's got some basketball history? Is there a soccer player who's got basketball history? Is there a person who was a good basketball player in high school who just happens to be on campus who can get give us some minutes? And they, they decided the answer was no. Uh, Sammy Wagner, a, a four-star top 30 recruit in the 2023 class, is about to enroll. Shoot, she might be on campus in Eugene as we're recording this. She'll be enrolling by the time, was it January 9th, I think, is when class starts. Um, so, but she's not going to play. Like Kelly has said that it was her decision. She's chosen not to play. She doesn't want to use a year of eligibility for half a season. So they are kind of where they're at. Um, and Kelly even said after, I know it's easier to say after a win than after a loss, that they feel like the the depth thing and the lack of players is kind of maybe being built too much is being built up on it. Um, and, and I probably agree and disagree with his comment. His comment was basically this time of year, everyone's playing a seven to eight player rotation, which is true. The 
And, and, and honestly, like you look at the way they played yesterday against USC, it, they didn't have really an issue with numbers, I thought. I thought they were fine with the players they played. Everybody played a fine number of minutes. Some of the guards are now playing closer to, to 35 minutes than they were before when they're playing about 28, 30 because of the Elise Hurst injury. But where you do run into problems, you are now one injury away from kind of a disastrous situation. Basham coming back is, is, is a significant development um, because that means if you were to theoretically lose one of your bigs, you at least have another player to throw in. I mean, they, before Basham returned, it was like, I don't even know what they were going to do if like Van Sluten or Che went down with any sort of injury. They'd be playing basically, they'd have to play very, very small. So that's a helpful thing. But I do think there's reason to to be concerned about this team's uh, just the numbers on it because you are another injury away. You are a game where there's a lot of foul trouble away from potentially like not that they would be forced to forfeit a game because they're not anywhere near there yet, but to the point where it would get ugly and you could see a, 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 a game be determined based upon the fact that you're playing players maybe out of position just because you don't have the roster depth. So. Um, yeah, I think it's a re- it's a re- it's a realistic and reasonable concern, Lama. Um, but I don't think it's one that changes. And Kelly seems pretty content to just roll with the numbers they've got. I don't think anyone's coming to to the rescue, and they'll play the rest of the season with eight or nine players. Oh yeah, nothing's coming. Nothing's coming down the pipeline. Kelly has, in the, I mean, they haven't had a, a walk on on the bench all season long, which I thought. Every time I ask Eric when we cover a game, I'm like, what's the deal? Why aren't there any walk-ons they, here? Jared, Jared, Kelly doesn't do walk-on players. He's, like, never done walk-ons. This is not a thing. Yeah, I know. It's it's, But it, I would just expect, like, this season, this is the time to add somebody because, like, you just went through. They are an injury. They are foul trouble. They are just a couple of couple of minutes away from some really deep stuff in this, in this conference season. And I know walk-ons just – usually are not the part of a Pac-12 basketball player, but that is at least somebody to put on the court. Um, you know, Gabe Reichel, like I mentioned earlier, and uh, J- James Cooper is on the men's basketball side. Um, those are guys who put in some valuable minutes in the PK Invitational or the PK Tournament. Um, the, yeah, I, I mean, I have the same worries basically reverse with the women's basketball team as I do with the men's basketball team. Uh, I just the, the the numbers thing is a significant issue, and it's it's also significant. Like Eric pointed out, that Kennedy Basham Basham came back. Excuse me, um, because if Philly Che got an injury, or if Grace Van Sluten got an injury, or foul trouble, blah blah blah, uh, beforehand they they were screwed interior wise. They just didn't have anybody with the a significant height advantage. And, and Basham is is somebody who needs some time to get used to the game. hasn't hasn't played since the first game of the season. She'll get there eventually, but uh, you know you can't teach height, and she she has height. She can at least be an interior presence on on layups and potential rebounds like Philly is. But um, I, I worry about the team in, in in general with this the number issues going forward in the Pac-12. Um, Pac-12 women's basketball is always strong. Um, there's going to be some teams with some savvy coaches that do try to take advantage of this. Um, I, I think the emergence of Philly Che as, as somebody who's reliable to grab rebounds and defend usually without fouling, which is the key thing here, um, is, is really helpful for Kelly Graves just because, again, if this were a situation where she's an, you know, an inexperienced defender and fouls all the time, then it would be even worse. But I think she does a good job of, of not fouling for the most part um, with her height and length and versatility and skill set and athleticism. Um, 
that's a really good center to rely on if, if you're Oregon and Kelly Graves. But uh, eight, eight players, man, just just not a lot. And we, we saw in men's basketball how quickly some injuries can just rack up for the team. I, I think for the women, it, it, they yes, they have a tight bench too, just like Oregon's men's team. But all their good players are basically healthy for, for the women. Yes. And that is the difference between the two teams is that, yes, from the men, Richardson is their best player. You could probably argue Dante is their second best player. But then yes. after that, you really don't know. Like, because the injured guys, how highly Dane Altman spoke of Brandon Rigsby and Jermaine Kuznard, um, the, the growth that we saw with Nate Biddle during the trip in August. The women's team, like, I'm not trying to, to be dismissive of the player who transferred or the players that are hurt, but their best players are, are healthy. Van Sluten, Gray, Tahina Pow Pow, and then, you know, Filipina Che is your best front court player from a defensive rebounding perspective. And they're all healthy. So, like, yeah, I like guess Jared said, like, one injury could change things, but as long as their core group of four players stays healthy – the expectation should be that they're they're in contention for the Pacto championship. They're th- that they have a chance to go into that. What is it? Saturday night and, and play whoever it may be, probably most likely Stanford. And they're in a league that has five ranked teams in it. So, and probably a couple other teams could be in the discussion for at receiving votes category. Yeah. Um, so you're in the league. That's really good, really deep. And your healthy player, your best players are all healthy. So I I kind of agree with Kelly that yeah, they they could run the table here with, with a, a roster of eight, maybe nine players. But to Jared's point, one more injury, one more player who up and leaves, and now you're in a world of hurt. Now you're in a position where it doesn't matter that all your best players are healthy, you just don't have enough players in general. Um it's going to be important that this team stays healthy and in games in which they have blowouts that India Rogers, Tahina Pow Pow, and Grace Van Sluten are off the floor as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I, I was just going to make a similar point, Matt, because we kind of got stuck in some of the negative stuff. I really like this women's team. Um, I understand the concerns with the depth because I think those are potentially legitimate. Again, it doesn't impact things too significantly right now because as matt said and i'm in agreement their core group is still available and as long as that's the case this is a really competitive team that can compete with everybody in the country you know they've proven that this year they dropped three games they've all been the top 10 teams very competitive with all three of them the ohio state game was even i think an eight point game late and then ohio state won in a big run um they could have very easily beat north carolina the ucla game honestly just I don't have a great explanation. I didn't think they played very well in that game. Came off a break. That was the, I think that was the worst they've played all season. Yeah. Um, but they bounced back against a USC team that put it on Oregon State and beat them by about 30 on Sunday. And I thought that was one of their better performances. So they're not in a bad spot at all. They're are currently 11th in the net ranking. I was just looking through the net. It's crazy on the women's side. Uh, I think eight of the t- eight teams in the Pac-12 are in the top 50. All 12 are in the top 100 in the net. So every single team you're playing week in, week out is a top 100 team. I mean, you're just basically your resume doesn't get worse by beating any of these teams because every single team is considered by the net uh, a, a, a higher end uh, opponent. 
So I think they're in a really good spot in terms of if they can, again, they just have to basically guard these these core six to seven players and make sure that they're healthy. Because if they can stay healthy through this, I really like the way this team is composed. I like the way Philly is playing right now. We haven't mentioned it, 20 rebounds on Sunday. That's crazy. Uh, defended the rim really, really well. Rhea Marshall for USC is probably the league's second or third best center, and she completely shut her down. She was through for 15 shooting. Um, like that, that kind of you see that maturation, that development. It's really exciting for this program to have a center who's legitimately going to be uh, a, a rim protector, but also a dominant rebounder. Like, and then you combine that with the offensive players you have on the perimeter with Chance Gray kind of starting to develop a bit more. Tay Hansen's been great from three. She had a great game on Sunday. Like all the pieces are here. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of, can you make it to the finish line in one piece? And that's the, that's the challenge here. Like there's, I think Stanford's the only team in this conference that I don't know if Oregon would be like, you know, how I, I, Oregon's not better than basically in this entire league, like 10 games on a neutral site. And unfortunately, UCLA lost its best player on Friday, maybe for a long time. And that team, which probably is the other team I think Oregon would struggle with, is now not going to be quite at 100% going forward. But regardless, I think this team is really talented. It's just a matter of can they stay healthy and keep everybody together. And again, the complement of players talked about this on an earlier pod, not to draw this out too long. I just think it all works really well. If you kind of have every Mm -hmm. single role filled with a, a really high-end player and in some cases players that are, are younger players that are still developing and i think the ceiling just gets higher and higher as the year goes but again to the original point got to stay healthy yeah and i don't i don't want to sound like mr negative when it comes to the women's basketball perspective i just depth is always something that i that i'll, I'll worry about um for any sport i just think it's extremely important when you can have enough depth of people who are uh, capable of playing at whatever level of competition you are. Um, but I do like the team in general. I think they're really versatile. Um, I think they can they can go big for um, for the, the, the players that they have on the team. I think they can go small, too. I like the three-guard starting lineup with Grace and Philly on the inside. Um, I really like what I've seen from Chance Gray this season. I think she's really turned into somebody who has, you know, you can kind of see, like, where her, um, where she can project now. At the beginning of the season, it was kind of, iffy you thought she was a good defender maybe not all that great offensively um i think she's turned a corner offensively and has has gotten a lot of confidence from shooting the ball deep um driving to the rim an uber athlete i really like what she could potentially become um and then grace has kind of fallen off in the last two games or at least hasn't produced to the same level that she did the previous couple games where she won all the the pac-12 of the week accolades um and then uh, you know to eric's point philly is just a lockdown uh, center, something that Oregon really hasn't had in her skill set in the last couple of years. Um, they've had great centers in, in previous years, like Ruthie Hebert, but she's a different type of center. She's all of six foot seven, almost six foot eight um, shot, or rim protector, rebounder, 20 rebounds this past game. And then Indy Rogers and Tahina Pow Pow. I mean, Rogers could be one of the best players in the conference. Um, except if it weren't for Stanford, who seemingly has all, all the best players in the, in the conference. And then Pow Pow is a little inconsistent, but when she's on, she's on. She's an excellent complimentary piece to India Rogers, who sets up the offense. And um, I really like the team as well. I think Kelly has a good group there. I think this is more of a style of, of his his team that he wants to coach than it has been in the last two years, yeah. um, ever since Sabrina left. Um, but I just I just worry about depth. 
because it just takes like Elise Hurst, who's a good complimentary role player as well, just takes an ankle roll. And if it's one way or the other, that's like one week or three to four weeks. So I just, I just worry about that. Um, and that's, 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 that's really the only concern with uh, the women's basketball team, other than their defense sometimes, but it's a Kelly Graves team. So they, they play defense every once in a while. <laughs> uh, we're going to see how both teams play out towards the second half of the season or maybe the last two thirds of the season, really. Um, lots of games left, lots of storylines to follow. We'll cover it all on Tech Territory. And then, hey, like football is still football. There will be news rolling out today, tomorrow, and into next week, into next month. And before you know it, spring football will be here as well. So it's always a busy time at the Odds and Audible's podcast, also on DuckTerritory.com. I highly encourage you guys to check it out. And until the next one, you've been listening to the Odds and Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! A new rain is coming to the South Side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying The Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky. Are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement for his man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for The Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.